Um, so we've been in the book of Acts, uh, and we have been following the birth of the early church. Uh, we started out with Jesus commissioning his disciples. He told them, I'm going to send you out. You're going to go to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then the outer parts of the earth. And this book's just kind of working through that outline. Um, he told them to wait till they received the Holy Spirit, though. And then they did something that we haven't been kind of touching on in our recaps, but it's kind of important. It's going to come into play tonight. Um, they took the time to choose a 12th uh, apostle. Judas had, um, had betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide. And so they were short one guy. And the reason this is important is because at this point, this is a completely, totally, and utterly Jewish movement. And if we miss that, you miss some of the big moves in the story. At this point, there's not a single Gentile Christian. There are what we call proselytite Jews, so people who had converted from uh, Gentile to Judaism and then became a Christian, but there's no just true Gentile who comes to believe in Jesus. This is a Jewish thing at this point. And so to a Jew to, to proceed with 11 was unheard of. Like even in the Old Testament when, uh, when they kind of separated the Levites and set them aside and they said, God is going to be your inheritance, you're not going to have your own inheritance, that actually left 11 tribes. And so that was so odd to them that they took uh, uh, Joseph's sons, he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they actually split them into two tribes so they would have the, the right number again after you pulled the, did that give you 12? Yeah, after you pulled the, no, I missed one. Anyway, they had to have 12, always. And so the apostles here could not imagine a church with just 11 leaders, and so they picked Mattathias to be the 12th apostle. Um, and this, this emphasis here is how Jewish this was, that this is pulling in the Jewish past, um, which we've been doing throughout the entire story. And so on, on Shavuot, uh, which is a, a pilgrimage festival to the Jews, so everybody that was outside of Jerusalem would pilgrimage in um, for the first fruits festival, the Holy Spirit falls. And so when Peter comes out of the upper room, he, there's a huge crowd that was in Jerusalem that he's able to preach to. And 3,000 people get saved. And Luke immediately takes us into kind of some of the rhythms that they set up. So they're meeting house to house and in the temple. They're breaking bread together and learning to obey the teachings of the apostles. Um, and then it kind of takes us to this next big story, which I think is just kind of the next big movement. We don't know how much time has passed there. But Peter and John are uh, going to temple and they see a, a beggar at the gate who was there every day. And so they looked at him, they saw something, and they... Uh, they healed him, and this caused quite a stir. It, caused a, it drew a crowd, and Peter preaches kind of his second big public message, and 5,000 people get saved this day. And now it's starting to get big enough that it's drawing the eyes of uh, kind of the power structures of the day, which was the Sanhedrin in the temple. This had kind of become a blend of a religious and a political group. Um, and these are the same guys that had tried Jesus, that kind of started his trial process just a couple months ago. And so... The Sanhedrin threatens the apostles, tells them no more preaching in the name of Jesus. And the apostles run back to their people. They say, we've been threatened. Um, and so they, they all pray for boldness. And uh, they pray that they don't pray that the persecution will go away. They just pray that God will give them boldness in the face of it. And so, so they continued. Uh, and at this point, they tell us that they continued um, in one accord. And they, people were selling things and giving it to take care of the poor. And... Uh, and the church is, is basically in, in some form of commune so that everybody had their needs met. 
uh, there were no needs left among the people. And so, then we have Ananias and Sapphira's uh, kind of betrayal. And, uh, and, and then immediately after that, uh, it takes us to Peter and the other apostles preaching daily in the temple. They were in Solomon's porch preaching daily. This is where we were last week. And they're, they're getting so popular, such, I guess so um, well-known that they're pulling people in from surrounding villages and they're lining the streets with these people so that Peter's uh, shadow might even fall on them uh, and heal them. And so the apostles, and you've got to remember, these are blue-collar fishermen that have suddenly been kind of elevated to this bizarre position where people are coming from miles around to see them. And this really bothers the Sanhedrin. So they actually arrest them, throw them in a common jail. An angel delivers them, but tells them to go immediately back to the temple and start preaching. So they do. They're arrested a second time, and this time they're actually beaten. They're, uh, the way the Sanhedrin would do it, they would strip them, and they would stretch them over a log or a table, and they would flog them. And so they're beaten um, for preaching uh, when they were threatened and warned not to. And then uh, they were released, and they considered it an honor to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And so that's kind of where we left off. And <clears throat> today, we, uh, we get into um, what's classically considered the, the choosing of the, of the deacons. Um, let's go ahead and read it. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increased in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom, you, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicolaus. My philosophy is if you say it with confidence, everybody will assume you're saying it right. A proselyte of Antioch. Uh, these were set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is the first expansion of the church as an organization as an actual kind of structure, you could say this is the first hire. This is the, they bring on their first employees. Um, and these kind of become an official position in the church. And I don't think that we can look at what the official position becomes and, and kind of say that this was it, because this is just the Greek word deacon, which just means to serve, a servant. And so we can't necessarily say that these guys were appointed to that official position as it becomes later. But this is the first people that got hired to do some work in the church. And the Old Testament, we, as you know, we've been kind of following some parallels in the book of Exodus especially where some things that were happening in the birth of Israel kind of have a parallel here in the book of Acts. And this is another one. There's another direct parallel here in Exodus 18 uh, that goes like this. When Moses, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people came to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to bear it alone. 
Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every matter, or every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easy for you, and they will bear the burden for you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So, Jethro has a, a unique perspective here because he's outside of things and he kind of sees what's happening, not just what Moses sees. What Moses sees is a line of people. Jethro gets to go to the back of the line and see what it's like at the back of the line at the DMV or Walmart when you're in a hurry and there's only two checkers over it, right? He notices this isn't just not good for Moses. This isn't good for the people. The people are getting worn out. They're getting tired of waiting all day to get their problems answered. And the big thing that's unique is, is Judaism at the time is unique primarily in one way, and that's the Torah. Back then, the ancient gods were these just kind of um, uh, finicky, fickle uh, gods that could just arbitrarily judge who they wanted. And so the ancient religious systems kind of had these, these sacrificial processes that were based on kind of hope. We really need a good crop. Let's see if we can make the right sacrifices and make the gods happy and just really hope that they're happy with us and bring us good crops and stuff. And Judaism stands unique amongst the ancient religions in that they had a book that told them how they were supposed to act. They actually knew the will of God for the first time ever. No other ancient religion gave us uh, such, a, such an outline of God's will. And so the, the people are actually responding well and they're, they're hungry for it. If you lived in, with the gods in that day... Um, this would have been this would have been a, a dream come true for you to be able to take your problem to God and say, "Is this is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this how I'm supposed to act? Is this what you want from me?" And Moses would would look in the Torah and say, "Yeah, this is what God wants you to do. This is how He wants you to act." And and you didn't have to guess anymore. You could know. But the problem was it led to this. It led to Moses answering everybody's questions because nobody wanted to guess anymore. Nobody wanted to to take a risk of displeasing God. And Moses had the beeline, so they were coming to him. So Jethro comes in and sees that this is not going to last, that he's getting overloaded and is going to need help. And so he uh, talks Moses into dividing the labor. And we find out that that actually works and, and actually continues uh, for a while, which is what the, new, what the early church does. They divide the labor. They hire help. They're running into really the exact same problem. There's too much to do, not enough people to do it. And so they hire the first, the first deacons. And this passage, it has a lot of good wisdom on, on, on how, to, how to do this, how to hire, the kind of people you need to hire, the whole process. There's a lot in there. <coughs> and we could go that direction, and all that stuff's fantastic. But there's something that jumped out at me, um, and it's here. It said, in those days, when the disciples were increased in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. A complaint arose. This whole story, this whole movement here is based on a complaint. This is, a, this, is the, and this is the first conflict. This is a conflict story. And bear in mind, at this point, the church is doing great. 
Everything, like they're seeing miracles. They're like signs and wonders are happening. They're growing like crazy. Like the first sermon, you know, 3,000 men join the church. Second, 5,000 join the church. They're going like crazy. You couldn't ask for more. They're taking care of the poor. They're doing the things that, that they felt Israel was supposed to do in the beginning. They're moving ahead. And this is kind of their first real like issue to stop and deal with. This is the first kind of snag in the road, if you want to call that. Up to this point, it was just Ananias and Sapphira, and God seemed to take care of that really quick. So this is their first like real church division, their real first church conflict. And you may be tempted, like you, you could be tempted to say, and I think the apostles could have been tempted to say, like eternal things are happening here. Like people are changing their destiny. We're, we're literally reshaping the culture. Do we have time to stop? Because 100% of the people aren't getting everything they think they should get. Like it'd be really easy to kind of blow past this and say, uh, you know, maybe this isn't as big a deal as everybody says it is. But I think the apostles recognize that this is kind of revealing a deeper issue. And that's in the nature of these widows. Um, because what we're seeing here is he said the, the Hellenists um, complained against the, the kind of Judaizers, the, the Israelites, the, those from Jerusalem. And what this was, was um, what we call the diaspora, which is kind of a scattering of the Jews from the very first uh, captivity of really a, of Assyria over the, the ten northern tribes and then definitely of Babylon over Judah, um, when people would, there was a huge number of Jews, uh, Josephus tells us, that scattered. They, they just ran. They didn't stay to fight it out. They didn't stay um, to get captured and taken back to Babylon. They just ran. And they would just scatter to the, to the far lands. And every time when the, uh, Alexander the Great conquered, um, a few more would run and scatter. And then when the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire were fighting over Israel, more would scatter. So this kind of spreading of the Jews all over the Hellenistic kingdom is called the Diaspora. And it got greater in 70 AD when they uh, came and burned the temple. Then the Jews just literally just spread like wildfire. But what would happen is these Jews would go to uh, different cities and they would kind of gather around with other Jews and create a synagogue, basically a small little gathering of people to study Torah. And, uh, and so we'd see this in Paul when he would go to, to these cities that weren't even Jewish cities. He would always start by going to the synagogue. And he would preach to the Jews, and they would usually reject him, and he would say, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. He would leave the synagogue and go and preach to the Gentiles in that city. Um, and so in all these cities, you have these little mini Jewish communities the problem was when, when a man would die in these cities, there was no support system for his widow. And so the common thing was for the widows to go back to Jerusalem because there they would have support. They could at least go to the temple and get the alms from the temple. And so Jerusalem had an, uh, an unusual number of widows. It was kind of where all the widows of the diaspora, when their husbands would die, and we see a similar thing in, uh, in the book of, uh, of Ruth when Naomi you know, she moved away because there was a famine in Israel and her husband dies. There's nothing for her to eat. There's no way for her to support herself. So she moves back and Ruth comes with her. Um, same kind of thing happened all over the Hellenistic Empire, uh, the Roman Empire. Is they would, when a man would die, his wife would come back to Jerusalem where she could get provided for. And so the problem was many of them were generations uh, in, 
in the Roman Empire and a lot of them didn't speak Aramaic. A lot of them spoke Greek. And so they would come back to Jerusalem speaking Greek and there was a definite kind of division. And so what's happening here is, is almost a form of racism. It's almost a form of like bigotry is you've got these non-Jew, non well, they're Jewish, but uh, non-Aramaic speaking widows that are now becoming part of the community and the core of the Jewish um, Christians were from Jerusalem. And so we're noticing that they're starting to neglect and, and not take care of the non, um, the, what we would say the Hellenistic widows, the widows that came from the diaspora. So this conflict is revealing a racism. It's revealing a bigotry that's kind of underneath the surface. That's what the real complaint that's going on here. And this is going to be in this, this idea of how Jewish this is, is going to be a major theme soon. Um, but at this point, I think the apostles were probably pretty ignorant of it. This is probably when you've got a bunch of Hellenist, non-Aramaic-speaking Jews that are coming up to you saying, we've got problems. I think this is revealing a, a pretty deep issue that's happening in the church at this point. And this kind of reveals um, our tension point for the week. So Judy can make fun of me in the thing. No. Um, first is unity. And unity is a major um, theme in the New Testament. Like it speaks very strongly against people who cause division like, and, and divisiveness. This is a major sin in the New Testament to create division and be divisive. And so the, the scripture just seems to really stress this unity. And Paul puts it this way, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's pretty strong language. There be no divisions among you. And, the, and the, the book of Acts here seems to keep stressing this one accord concept. It's popped up three or four times already and we're barely in. That the whole church was in one accord. It's unity. On the other end of the spectrum, we have conflict. Division, disagreement, debate. And this seems to be the bad guy in the New Testament. Like this is the... This is, this is, Except you have the apostles saying things like this. Peter, Peter, or Paul writes this about Peter. Cephas is, is uh, Peter's Greek name. Um, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul tells a story and it sounds like Paul gets up in Peter's face like, like really kind of a heated discussion. Like, because Peter, what Peter had been doing is he had been hanging out with the, with the Gentiles until the other Jews showed up. The Jews from Jerusalem showed up, the kind of more conservative um, I'm going to leave it there. The more conservative Jews, I was going to say some mean things, but they, uh, they show up and all of a sudden Peter kind of, goes, you know, kind of stands over with them and starts ignoring the Gentiles. And Paul's like, what is happening here? And so Paul gets in his face and confronts him about it. And then he says that after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they have an issue with some of the Judaizers, some of the people that believed you were supposed to convert to Judaism before you became a Christian. Um, and Paul was debating with these guys, and the debate got so heated that they sent a, a bunch of them back to Jerusalem to talk to the rest of the apostles about it, sort it out. This actually leads to the first like real ecumenical church council, which is in uh, Acts 15, um, to sort out this fight, this conflict that had happened. So conflict 
becomes a theme in the New Testament that where these things fueled some of the biggest movements and some of the biggest changes for the better in the New Testament. In fact, Paul seems to stress that it's essential in some ways. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There has to be divisions and factions and, and things. It's almost like we're supposed to have unity, not uniformity. You guys understand the difference there? We're supposed to have unity with no uniformity. We're supposed to be ourselves. So that brings up our question. Are we supposed to pursue unity or conflict? Yes. And normally I'd stop there. Normally I would stop with our tension point and move on to our main point of the week. But I really think this is the main point of this passage. Because a quick reading, and most of the time we read this passage, this is about the choosing of the deacons. This is about the choosing of... In fact, my Bible, uh, it, it puts the little heading on top of this pericope and says, uh, seven chosen to serve. That's what, it, that's what my Bible says this little seven verses is about. It's about the seven that are chosen to serve. But if, uh, if you've ever been a church that's been torn apart by conflict, or you've ever um, studied any church history whatsoever you know that you could, you could just as easily classify this, these seven verses as the church dodges a bullet. I mean, that's what I think this passage is really about. The church weathers its first conflict. The church dodges a bullet here. And it does it well. And that's what we're going to pick apart a little bit, is how the church makes it through this first conflict well. How it does it right. And I'm not, I'm not going to give you like a five point like outline like a how-to formula because you can't do that you can't make a formula that you can follow i'm just kind of grabbing some things that jump out at me from this passage you could probably find five more um, these are just some things that i noticed i'm going to move through these a little bit quick but the first thing we need to do is deal with it and this is kind of a tough one because we have kind of a bury it like don't talk about it you know, mentality. Oh, it's not that important. It's not that big a deal. And we just kind of hold it in. And we think that, no, it's, it's not important. And they didn't do that. And it was very important they did that because this is a major issue that would have grown if they hadn't brought it up and made a conflict about it. And this isn't like a theological debate. This isn't like, a, like an existential quandary that the apostles had to go to the scripture. And this is just an everyday hiccup in administration that's being fueled by some problems um, kind of in the heart of the people. And it would have been really easy for the, for the apostles to say, you know how much better you have it now? Like, we don't make you pay a temple tax. We don't make you, you know, like, seriously, this is a pretty good thing. And you're going to complain about this? Like, they could have done that. But they didn't. They, uh, they engaged it. So the first thing is we have to deal with it. We have to actually bring this stuff out and talk about it. And be open with it. And if something bothers us, we have to discuss it with our people. The second is assess yourself. And the apostles here, they look at their role. They look at their gifts. They look at their calling. And they look at the situation. And they kind of assess, is this something I can do? Is this something I can fix? They, and they kind of look at, is this something I'm supposed to fix? Is this something I'm supposed to handle? And so they start by, by kind of looking at themselves first. Like, where am I in this whole thing? Where's my part in the problem? What did I do wrong? And they, said, and they decided, 
We're supposed to be preaching the word and praying. And that sounds a little bit elitist when you think about it, when they're like, I don't see how we can leave the scripture to go serve tables. Like, it sounds a little bit, you know. But if you remember, nobody has been threatened or beaten for feeding poor people yet. Right? Like in the last chapter, they were beaten for preaching the word. So I don't think this is an elitist statement. I don't think they're saying, no, we're, we should focus on the scripture. They're saying, we're the ones who should be out making people angry. We're the ones who should be out risking our lives for the gospel. We're the apostles. That's on our head. We should stick with the scripture and, the, and, and prayer and, and taking the risks, not doing the social movement aspect of it. And so they're keeping, kind of keeping their head on the chopping block here because they've been threatened. Like it's technically against the law to do what they're doing. But they, they, they assess themselves first before they get into it. And then number four, they, they consider the other side. And this is a big one. They noticed that there was two camps. Ultimately, the problem was between two camps. You've got the Hellenists and the, the kind of Jerusalemites. And they're, they're disagreeing with each other. And so rather than saying, you know, we'll pick some guys to take care of the issue, they said, I tell you what, you, like, I understand you're not being represented, you're not being heard, I want you to be heard, you bring us candidates. And they gave the, they gave the kind of prescription, we want them to be good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Like, and really, other than that, we want them to represent you. You bring us people. And, ba- and the names of the people they bring are Greek names. So these are most likely Hellenists. These are most likely men who had been scattered in the diaspora who, um, who are back. These aren't... No worries. These aren't... Uh, most likely these weren't Jerusalemites. Um, we don't know that for sure. We don't know their full background. But they bore their Greek names. Um, so most likely these guys were chosen from the Hellenist side who were bringing kind of their... And the apostles welcomed that. They said, I want to hear from your side. So they didn't just try to kind of micromanage this situation. They assessed themselves in their own contribution. And then they, assessed, then they heard from the other side. Um, you bring somebody to me. And they laid hands on them and blessed them. The third thing is never take God out of the situation. Uh, their only requirements were that these guys be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Like that's what we need. We need these to be God people. Um, a lot of times when we hit conflict, we resort to good administrative skills. We bring our business you know, expertise. We use psychology. We, we kind of rely on psychology to, to get us out. Or we run to the Christian bookstore and grab a four-step program you know, that Max Licato wrote. Um, no, I don't mind Max Licato. He's just so prolific. He's the easy one to pick on because he's got like 4,000 books out there. Um, you know, so we, we kind of fall back on on some of these supporting things and rather than relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us through these conflicts and saying, you know, ultimately the one thing we can't budge on is these guys have to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. These guys have to be God people so that we can bring that kind of influence in. So when we have conflict, it's got to be full of God. And the last thing is stay. This goes back to our tension point. The church does not do this well. When we hit conflict, when we hit disagreement, when we hit uh, especially theological, like just disputes, we just split. And we're like, oh, and, and then we call it unity. Look, I'm in perfect unity with the ten people that agree with me. Like, we call that unity. And it's not, it's uniformity. 
Unity is when we say, this is more important than all my little gripes and stuff. I like to say it this way. Godly conflict, godly conflict, can only happen from within the context of unity. If it's godly conflict, it only happens in the context of unity. Outside of that conflict, outside of the context of unity, it's just being divisive. It's just, it's just trying to cause division. But when you're committed to the unity, when you're committed to the, to the oneness of the body, when you're committed to, to working it out, and, and ultimately, what you want more than anything else, what your deep motivation is, is for the body to be healthy and strong and life-giving and, and what it's supposed to be to truly represent Jesus on earth, when that's your core motivation is that unity and that's more important to you than anything else, now you're ready to, to, to bring conflict. Now you're ready to say, you know, I, we have some problems, we have some issues that we, need to, that we need to work out. When underneath all of that you want nothing more than to make this better, when it's not just you're making me mad and if I don't get my way I'm going to go to another church. When that's, when that's not even in there, when it's like, I'm here no matter what, because these are my people and this is who God has called me to and I'm committed to this, now you're ready to say, we have some things that we need to fix together and work out and talk about and, to, and discuss and debate. And we're just gonna, sometimes we're just going to sit in that tension. One of my favorite stories is the, the and his name is not going to come to me. Um, he was a Quaker. Uh, I think it's John Moreau. Um, who in the, in the slave era... Uh, he was the first Quaker to come to his church and say, I think slavery is evil and we need to end it. And his church told him they were, he was a lunatic. They were like, number one, we can't afford to. There was one Quaker writer in that era who wrote, um, we came to America to do good and instead we did well. Um, and they, so they had locked in. And so he, he said, we need, to, we need to end this. And what was beautiful was they told him no, and they just sat in church together for four years. And one family at a time started agreeing with him and, and freeing their slaves and releasing their slaves. And in the end, the church raised enough money to pay wages, as much wages as they could, to the slaves they released, that they freed. Back wages for all the time they had. And it took years to do this. And they didn't say, you're crazy, you need to leave and find another church. He didn't say, fine, if you're not going to do it my way, I'm out of here. They just sat in that tension of every single Sunday, them thinking, that's that kook. And him thinking, yeah, those are those evil guys that still believe in slavery. And they were okay with that. They just sat in that. They didn't feel the need to divide. Now we have a a slave Quaker church and a non-slave Quaker church. They didn't do that. They just stayed in the tension. So godly conflict can only exist in unity, in the context of unity. So during our response time, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to picture Open Table Community Church in conflict. And we've been lucky so far. We really have. And we haven't, it's not like we've been around long. We've been lucky. And don't go hunting for conflict. Like, don't go home and say, I've got to come up with something to gripe about. That's not what I'm saying by any means. But when it happens, and it will happen, I want you to know that, number one, it's okay. It's okay to disagree. If you, if you 
come and listen to me preach and you leave and it's like, I don't agree with a thing he said today. That is awesome. Come back next week. I mean, I'm right, but you can still come back next No, I'm kidding. You can... But you don't, you don't have to agree with everything I say to be a complete, total, and utter committed member of this church. We absolutely still love you and need you and we need your input. We need your, your heart. We need your gifts. We need, we need you. We don't need, what we don't need is for you to come in and say, oh, this is what this church believes. Okay, fine. I'll just, I'll put on that face. I'll put on that front. You know, that's the way I'll be. That's the last thing we need. We need you to be completely you. So when we have conflict, that's okay. It doesn't mean things have blown up. It doesn't mean everything's out of whack. Oh no, now what's going to happen? It's healthy. But when it does arise, will you commit with me to number one, not burying it? Don't go home angry. Don't go home grumpy. We live in the we live in the age of email. Just email me and just throw it all out there. Guts and all. Just, you know, this is, this is what I'm worried about. This is what I'm afraid is happening. This is what scares me. This is what, you know, I feel our church is turning into. Don't bury it. Number two is, will you assess your heart first? Will you look at yourself? Your past, the churches you've been in before, like your, your kind of upbringing is, is some of this stuff just because it's not what you're used to because, you know, You've never seen it done this way before. Like, assess yourself first. Why is this bothering you? Is it bothering you because you believe it's contradicting a core value of Scripture? Or is it bothering you because you're just not used to it? And neither one's wrong, but just assess yourself first. So you're bringing that into the discussion. And then when you consider the other side, that that other side might need a voice. Even if you're right, that other side might need a voice. They might need to work through what they're going through to get to a better place. And, and the, the worst thing that could happen is you going in and saying, you know what you're doing is not right, uh, and here's where the scripture says so. You know, that that might be the worst thing that could happen to them in that, in, them in that moment. Consider their side and what is their, what, what is their real struggle? What is their real, why are they having a hard time with this? Why? So, and give them a voice. Give them a chance to speak. And obviously, please commit to bringing God into the situation. Not your rules, not your past, not your previous experiences, but God. The Holy Spirit, the living Holy Spirit of God. Invite the Holy Spirit of God into the situation through prayer, through counsel, through the Word. And let that speak. And commit yourself to obey to that. And last is, will you stay? Because if you're just throwing stink bombs, if you're just mad and, and you know that if it doesn't go your way, you're going to find another place... Please allow us to help you find a church that will make you more happy. Because we will. I mean, and, and we'd be happy to help you find a church that fits you better. If the, if the problem is, is something in the music or something in this, or I really don't like how you do that, and, and we can find a church that does it your way, we will gladly help you transition to that place. But all these same principles are going to need to be applied there. You're going to need to do all this wherever you land. And hopefully, you'll find a place where you stay and stick. When you can say in your heart that the worst possible thing, the worst thing that could happen was that, that whatever's bothering me could break this up, could, could damage the body, could cause division, could, could 
you know, ultimately break things. That's the worst thing that could happen. Not that I don't get my way, not that things don't go the way I think they should go, but the worst thing that could happen was something damaged the body. When you're there, then you're ready to conflict, then you're ready to fight. When you're fully committed to this working, put, a, put the dukes up, bring it on, I'm ready. The way this passage ends is what I love. And this is how we know that whatever they did, however they did it, it worked. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied, or multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many priests became obedient to the faith. That's all we want. It's for the word of God to expand. The word of God to spread and grow, and people to be added to the body. Not necessarily this body, just added to the body. Jesus said, here's how people are going to know you're my disciples. Here's how they're going to know without you having to tell them. Because you love each other. When you love each other, when you love one another, they won't even, you won't even have to say, you won't even have to tell them, I'm here, I'm here on behalf of Jesus. They're just going to know. And the church doesn't always do a great deal. Of, doesn't, doesn't do great at this. But we have to get this through. We have to get this into our hearts. The unity and conflict go hand in hand. It's, I don't even know if I'd say it's a tension as much as both sides of a coin. You can't have unity if, if you don't, if you can't be authentic and, and work through the issues you have. And you can't rightly work through the issues you have if you're not committed to unity. They go together.